Hello, I'm Jessica Burbank, and this is the Young Turks, the conversation. We're at a time when Democrats are struggling to ensure that they maintain control of Congress, and not only that, but gain some more seats. And there's a lot of questions about how to do that when we're experiencing record inflation. And I'm really excited that we have Saru Jayaraman here to talk with us about it, who is president of One Fair Wage and director of the Food Labor Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley. How are you doing? Thanks for coming on. Thank you, thanks Thanks for having me, great to be here. Great, so let's get into this. A lot of your work focuses on lower income folks, working class people, service workers like bartenders and waitresses. And I have paid my bills as a bartender before. And I know that this is something people think about when they're casting a ballot. And Democrats are not really making this a central point this election cycle for the midterms. Can you talk a little bit about what your research is showing and what you've been working on in this space? Yeah, listen, we've known for years that raising the minimum wage is actually one of the most popular issues that exists. And that putting it directly on the ballot drives people to vote themselves a raise. Frankly, to show up to vote more than any other issue or candidate or party. It is, especially for low wage workers, the condition that defines their lives as low wage workers and their ability to survive and feed their children. And especially now in record times of inflation, when you've got so much of the country, especially in the restaurant industry, which I've focused on for the last 20 some years, with wages of two and three dollars. That means your wage is half, sometimes half, definitely less than the cost of a gallon of gas. And when you, when when it costs you more to get to work than you get when you get there, you are going to not, you're not going to be able to work in that industry anymore. You're going to look for something else, and you're certainly not going to be motivated to vote if you don't hear elected officials not just talking about the issue but committing to change in this really really difficult time so i'm just going to give one quick example in 2018 we collected 400,000 signatures to raise the minimum wage in michigan to $12 an hour restaurant workers in michigan earn a wage of $3 and 67 cents they're supposed to get the rest in tips and the ballot measure we had proposed would raise the overall minimum wage from nine to 12 and the wage for restaurant workers from three to 12. And Republicans who control the legislature in Michigan understood something that a lot of Democrats don't seem to understand. They said, we know this is going to drive working people, people of color, women of color to the ballot. And so we're gonna take it off the ballot. They announced this to the press and make it the law just to keep people from voting. We promise to gut this after the election. So they raised the wage by law from three to 12. And then they in fact did gut it after the election back down from 12 to three. But in between those two things, we mobilized tens of thousands of low wage workers to vote. And we saw a 300% voter increase, voter turnout increase among low wage workers when they were engaged in a peer to peer voter program around this issue where workers told each other, hey, we just got a raise, but we've got to go vote or they're gonna take it away from us. And a 400% voter turnout increase among young people. It is abundantly clear that this is an issue that drives people to the polls, especially for low wage workers, almost more than any other issue, party or candidate. 
Uh, and that if Democrats don't talk about it, don't act on it, don't change these wages, it's actually at their peril. We, we've seen over and over and over again, the polls this year are showing the number one issue on voters' minds in America is the economy, it's inflation, it's jobs. And so it boggles my mind why more people aren't talking about how we're going to address working people's needs when that is clearly the number one thing people are thinking about. Right, shocking finding. It turns out people having their most basic needs met is very <laughs> important to them. And people are struggling to do that right now, right? With record inflation and wages remaining stagnant for the past half a century, it's a huge problem. And yeah. it sounds like you found a way to reach people to communicate about this issue and mobilize them. So what's your working theory as to why Democrats are not making this central to their campaigns? You know, I, I have to say that there's this uh, constant refrain we hear from some Democrats on a wide range of issues. One is minimum wage, another is gun control, that we are polarized, that these are polarized, controversial issues. We can't move on them because the country's so polarized. Um, the truth is that not just polling, but data. You know, actual evidence from going out and talking to people in Michigan, places like Michigan and Ohio and or Arizona, battleground states, proves that in fact we are not polarized from each other. Most people agree, regardless of party or affiliation, agree that we need to raise wages, agree that working people deserve to be paid a livable wage. We're actually polarized from our elected officials quite often not from each other and we're polarized from our elected officials because they are in an echo chamber listening to the National Restaurant Association on wages and the National Rifle Association on gun control, the two NRAs. Um, and unfortunately, these lobbying, these lobbying groups are holding them hostage, making them think that this is uh, controversial or allowing them to get away with saying it's controversial when in fact we know that it is absolutely not. Look, we are going through a moment of historic upheaval for workers right now. You know, we have had a subminimum wage for tipped workers in this country since emancipation. At emancipation, the restaurant industry sought to hire newly freed slaves, not pay them and make them work on just for tips. That became law in 1938 as part of the New Deal when everybody got the right to the minimum wage except for millions of black workers, among them tipped workers who were told you don't get a wage, you get zero from your boss as long as you get tips. And we went from zero in 1938 to $2.13 an hour, the current federal minimum wage for tipped workers. Today, 43 states still have a wage that's $5 or less. But what is so incredible and hopeful, Jessica, is that we are going through a moment for the first time in US history since emancipation, millions of workers are refusing to work for these subminimum wages. 1.2 million workers have left the industry citing low wages as the reason, millions more are leaving. And thousands of restaurants across the country are having to raise wages to recruit staff. I've been trying to tell Democrats for the last year, you should be screaming from the rooftops, wages are going up. It's a good thing. Stand with the workers who are who are standing up for themselves and saying enough is enough. I refuse to work for these wages. This is a very positive silver lining in a moment that feels hard, difficult, sad, hopeless on a wide range of other issues. In the worker space, workers are winning. Wages are going up. 
Uh, we just won a f in Michigan. That story I just told was overturned by the courts in July. The Michigan courts declared what the Republicans did to be unconstitutional, meaning the law in Michigan is now $12 an hour and it's going up to 15 and 24. And there's at least a dozen states about to follow. So my point is it's a very hopeful time. It, it, it wouldn't even take, we're not even asking Democrats to speak to something that is negative and depressing and controversial. This is overwhelmingly popular and overwhelmingly positive. Changes on the horizon for so many low wage workers. We need Democrats to support these workers by supporting policy change that will institutionalize the gains that workers have won by refusing to work for poverty wages any longer. Yeah, it truly feels like Democrats are fumbling the bag, so to speak, with this issue because we still have Jerome Powell, who's the head of the Fed now, who is not appointed by Joe Biden, who is saying that we've got an uneven playing field in our economy right now and workers have too much power. And to resolve inflation, we've got to bring wages down. And it drives me crazy whenever I hear that because Obviously, wages need to go up, especially at a time when inflation's at an all-time high. We've got to be regulating corporations who are price gouging. But it is good that workers have unprecedented power. They're striking, they're withholding their labor if they're not being paid enough to cover their living costs. That's huge, but we also are seeing record union busting. So. That's also a policy space that I think the Biden administration could be more active in, especially when we see new studies showing that $1.3 million in lifetime wages union workers get that non-union workers don't get. That's a major difference. So what else do you think the Biden administration could be doing? Not just Democrats talking about these things and campaigning on them, but trying to push these policies in Congress or the administration. That's right. We need Biden to actually weigh in and push Democrats to pass the Raise the Wage Act, which would raise the minimum wage to at least $15 an hour and the subminimum wage for tipped workers to push Democrats to pass the PRO Act, which would allow so many war workers the right to unionize, to pass paid family and medical leave. I mean, there's so many issues right now that the Biden administration could push and win. Um, but there seems to be a definite reticence and I'm not gonna say it's all Joe Biden, it's also Democrats in the Senate who are just blocking real gains for workers. When in fact, they could benefit so much from listening, observing what is happening in the economy right now, which is that millions of workers, undecided, unaffiliated workers, workers who don't identify with the party, could actually identify perhaps with the party if they saw the party standing with them in a moment when they are rising up and saying enough is enough. We have it you know it's incredible to me to hear somebody like Jerome Powell say workers have too much power. Workers have had no power since emancipation, not enough. So we are right now just beginning to correct decades, generations of inequity for workers, generations of wage stagnation. That is what is happening right now is that workers are saying enough is enough and Democrats should be standing with them or they're going to lose. Yeah, if we see Democrats lose their majority, it won't be a mystery to us and people who are saying this now. And hopefully something changes ahead of the midterms because we know that the Republicans are just going further and further to the right. So thank you so much for talking with me today. This is so important and hopefully we see this change and we see Democrats step up because it's a crucial moment and it means people either putting food on the table or not.
it's uh, a historic, and keeping your house or not. Yes, it's a historic moment when workers are rising up, demanding more. It's exciting, and we should be standing with them. Absolutely. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Hello, I'm Jessica Bermink. This is the conversation on the Young Turks. And we've been talking a lot about the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi. And today we're joined with Matthew Cunningham Cook, who writes for The Lever. He does a lot of research on capital markets and healthcare and retirement policy. And it turns out that the water crisis in Jackson is tied to the crooks on Wall Street. So thank you so much for joining, Matthew. Really excited to dig in. Right now, there are more than 150,000 people without clean water in Jackson, Mississippi. And as it turns out, this is a tough problem for them to address because of their municipal budget. And this is tied to Wall Street. Can you introduce us a little bit to this connection here? Yeah, so in the US, basically all municipalities, cities, states, school district issue debt to fund capital improvements, whether it's new schools, new prisons, new water sewer lines, new police stations. Very often those types of capital investments are funded through debt and those debts are uh, underwritten by Wall Street and rated by Wall Street firms. And there's a, a range of ratings from AAA to junk that determines the interest rates that the city or state will pay on the debt that they owe. What The big problem here that we identify in the piece is that Moody's and other bond rating agencies are much harsher with municipal debt than with other kinds of debt, like mortgage-backed securities, like corporate debt issued by companies like ExxonMobil. What we see is that they are much more likely to be very aggressive in saying Jackson or another municipality doesn't have the means to pay off its debt if it has higher poverty rates or if it has pension obligations that they need to pay to their public employees. So we saw this play out in real time where in 2017, the progressive mayor of Jackson, Shokwe Antar Lumumba, campaigned to issue a bond to fix Jackson's water and sewer infrastructure. But less than a year after taking office, he was kneecapped in that project by Moody's, who downgraded the city's debt into junk status. And what makes this just particularly outrageous is right around the same time, you saw uh, uh, tranches of commercial mortgage-backed securities rated AAA right before for like a mall project. Right before we saw a world historic global pandemic that sent tens of millions of people out of offices, out of malls, uh, and Moody's just didn't anticipate that at all. And so the big problem here too is that. 
businesses don't have unlimited taxing power and almost all of them are younger, substantially younger than a place like Jackson, which is I don't know exactly how old it is, but at least 150 years old um, with a, a long history of paying its debts on time. So, so that's basically the story. You know, one class of ratings for cities and another class of ratings for Wall Street. And it's a ratings agency that is a Wall Street firm that gets the overwhelming majority of its revenues from Wall Street companies looking for favorable ratings that has a track record. Of, of giving inflated ratings to companies owned by its largest shareholder, Warren Buffett, uh, and is a company that has never meaningfully been held to account for its role in the financial crisis in 2008, where they rated uh, deals that were specifically defined by the people issuing these deals as, as uh, as being like fecal <laughs> deals, I'm not going to say the exact word. Uh, and this was released in emails found by the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations and Moody's and other bond rating agencies rated them triple A. And even though they had to pay large fines, not a single executive or raider was prosecuted for their role in causing a financial crisis that threw millions of people out of their homes and out of their jobs. So How that's long the story. Sorry, go ahead. I was just saying that's the story. <laughs> yeah, let's fill in some details for our viewers who might not be in in depth in the monetary policy, yeah. especially municipal policy. So if I'm the federal government and I want to, you know, pass a huge defense spending bill, I can yeah. vote to spend the dollars, and the the proper account will get credited because the federal government's a currency issuer. Municipalities cannot issue dollars, so if they don't raise enough revenue via taxes from their residents, they've got to finance their spending in that budget with these municipal bonds. There are people who will purchase government bonds because they have a guaranteed return on investment. And it's a little bit less risky, it's a little bit more guaranteed than maybe investing in the stock market. So that's why they're appealing to some people. It is a problem if Moody's is, is giving these bonds very low ratings because this could lead to a city like Jackson that's facing a water crisis to go bankrupt. And unfortunately, yeah. this happens a lot in majority black municipalities. Can you talk a little bit about how this is a racial justice issue as well? Yeah, I mean, what we found, you know, we've done the research over the years, and what we found is that the worst rated municipalities almost always tend to be majority people of color. And that's just uh, the name of it. And Moody's has never gone on the record uh, to explain this massive racial discrepancy in their ratings, not once. They've never gone on the record for why. They never talked about pension obligations prior to 2008. You know, in municipal debt, they would always come up with some other reasons uh, to raise rate municipal debt more harshly. All of a sudden, when you have a billionaire, uh, John Arnold, spending you know millions of dollars raising concerns about uh, pension obligations, do you see Moody's uh, including this? So, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, this is a a two tier system. Cities cannot. Uh, raise the funds uh, as uh, businesses cannot uh, tax their way into paying their debt in the same way that municipalities can, which makes this two-tier structure all the more uh, 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 frustrating and racist.
Right, of course, but but these corporations can do big stock buybacks and uh, inflate their earnings per share projection yeah. and inflate the price of their stock. Let's talk a little bit about this is both hopeful and kind of defeating that the federal government and the Biden administration could be doing more. Obviously, climate disasters are the direct results of climate change, which is the result of fossil fuel giants emitting a ton of carbon. And now Jackson, this municipality is paying the price for that. The federal government could appropriate funds to Jackson to cover the cost of fixing this issue, which will cost them two to $4 million. Can you say more? Cuz you do mention in this piece that the federal government could be using their power to step in. Yeah, I mean, the only way to solve the Jackson water crisis in the short term is very straightforward. It's a massive federal appropriation of a billion dollars to the uh, to the city to to fix its water and sewer lines. Uh, that's the only way out of it. What what we try and identify in the article is saying, you know, first of all, there's kind of the benefit of hindsight of let's kind of travel back in time to 2017 and see how this could have gone differently. But also, you know, as the Guardian has reported, there's water crises happening all around the country, and there are cities and states that are looking to solve the crisis right away, but who are unable to do that because of harsh ratings from Moody's and other bond rating agencies. But absolutely, you're right. The only short-term way out of this is a significant appropriation of of money to Jackson. Right, and down with Moody's for the long term as well. I think also about all of the people who will scream and say, well, the federal government can't just print more dollars and send them down to Jackson. But this is the kind of situation where the carbon emissions were put out there by fossil fuel companies profiting off of selling fossil fuels. And so that's a huge negative externality for a product that they are selling. A corporate tax on the fossil fuel companies would be a great way to pay for this. So there are a lot of options here. Can you say more about what people are talking about in Jackson? Did you talk to anyone in Jackson or when you were covering this issue? Was anyone giving creative solutions to this problem other than going after Moody's, which as you said is a long-term solution? Yeah, I mean, the, the 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 main thing that folks are talking about right now is the need for this substantial federal investment in the water and sewer infrastructure in Jackson. That is that's the main thing, you know. And unfortunately, you know, Congressman Thompson Benny Thompson, who represents Jackson, has is only pushing for two hundred million dollars when that's only one fifth of the total amount that's going to be needed. And so it's the classic problem of Democrats negotiating against themselves in advance, allowing. So, kind of by the time Republicans get a hold of this, it's going to be down to what, you know, 60, 50, 40 million dollars, who knows? And so, yeah, you know, I mean, in the background of all of this is just frankly the, the classic story of Democrats who don't know how to negotiate effectively or advocate effectively for their constituents. And that's a problem we see all across the country. And frankly, is you know, the reason why we're just seeing this poll from the New York Times that's saying, you know, Kevin McCarthy is the odds on to become the next speaker of the House. So So if you're a constituent of Benny Thompson's in Jackson, you might feel a little bit left behind. But on a national level, he's become this public figure heading the January 6 committee hearings when people yeah. in Jackson are struggling to have clean water. It turns out that Democrats need to do something materially to make their constituents lives better if they want to keep their votes. 
And you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene taking credit for the funds appropriated as a result for the Inflation Reduction Act, making it seem to our constituents like she's done a lot to help them out with the flooding. So can you just say a word about with the midterms coming up, what Democrats should do here? Yeah, I mean, I think that we should be calling for a massive, you know, multi hundred billion dollar systematic investment in our water infrastructure. I think we absolutely have when we're spending, you know, all kinds of money on, you know, trillion dollars on a single jet that doesn't fly, you know, the F 35 jet debacle. It seems like we can afford to pay for our water infrastructure or, you know, when we're spending, you know, enormous amounts of money, you know, privatizing Medicare, you know, why can't that money go to our water infrastructure as well? You know, these are basic questions that are really unfortunately not answered in our political discourse. And that's why I'm, you know, so thankful to kind of news outlets like the Young Turks that take the time to address issues like these. Yeah, it's super important. The fact that we have Wall Street determining how much funding a municipality gets that's facing a crisis is a failure of our government yeah. and a failure of our, our democracy. Can you Absolutely. say where people can find your work if they're interested in reading more? Yeah, we're the lever, levernews.com. We are actually the largest subscriber based investigative news outlet, national investigative news outlet in the country. And so if you support journalism like this, please subscribe, please donate. We are accountable to no one but our subscribers. So we really need everybody to pitch in. Real investigative journalism is not dead and you are evidence of this. Thank you so much for talking Thanks with so me, Matthew. <laughs>